Gospel and chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to read from verse 18 through verse 23. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 1 and verses 18 through 23. Again, please give your careful attention. This is the Word of God. Matthew 1 at verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When His mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God abides forever. The Old Testament gives us, as it were, a line drawing of the coming Messiah. As we come to the New Testament, the Gospel writers, and in particular this morning, the Gospel writer Matthew, fills in the color, as it were, of that line drawing of the coming Messiah from the Old Testament. If we were to ask the question, who is Jesus, then Matthew would respond, even in the verses prior to the section that we have read, verses 1 through 17, he tells us he is the Christ. He is the Messiah, the Anointed One of God. He is the Son of David the heir to an everlasting throne. He is the son of Abraham, the seed in which all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Against that backdrop of filling in the line drawing of the prophecies of the Old Testament, Matthew in our text this morning then records the birth of Jesus which he tells us was in fulfillment 
of Old Testament Scripture. He tells his readers that this child is God incarnate, come to save sinners. That might be a very familiar message to so many of us. But even as we prayed ahead of this sermon, I trust God enables us never to be so familiar with it that already you have switched off. I've heard all that before. What else can be said about it? I'm not going to say anything new this morning, but I'm going to tell you what our forefathers would have called the old, old story. But it's a story that should thrill our souls the coming of Jesus Christ, God incarnate, God with us, the one who is called Jesus because He will save His people from their sins. We're going to think about three things this morning. First of all, a supernatural conception and virgin birth. Secondly, fulfilled prophecy, and then thirdly, two given names. So, a supernatural conception and virgin birth, fulfilled prophecy, and two given names. So, first of all then, a supernatural conception and virgin birth, verses 18 through 20. Down through the centuries, the church of Jesus Christ has confessed as that which is true, that which God Himself has revealed. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. If you know your Apostles' Creed, then you'll know those very words come from that creed. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Why do the church and why has the church confessed that truth? It's a startling thing, isn't it, to confess. It's not a normal or usual thing. Perhaps in any day it's not an expected thing to confess. So why does the church confess that truth? Because it is what the Bible teaches. It is what God has revealed, even as we see in our passage from Matthew's gospel this morning. During the time of Mary's betrothal to Joseph, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, Matthew tells us, chapter 1, verse 18. Now, that was not the way that Joseph saw it at the beginning. No doubt he supposed that she had been unfaithful to him and that she was guilty of adultery. And so he resolved to divorce her quietly, verse 19. But we read, verse 20, as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Verse 20. 
So Jesus' conception in the womb of Mary was not a natural occurrence. He had no human father as to His conception. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. This is the consistent testimony of the Scriptures. Gospel writer Luke says exactly the same thing. Luke chapter 1, verse 26, we read this. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Luke continues to record, verse 34, And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? Mary asks a very reasonable question here. Not one of unbelief, but of how is this to occur? Verse 35, And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The very exact same imagery that we read of in the creation narrative at the beginning of the Scriptures, the hovering presence of the Spirit of God, when God said, let there be, and there was. Here again is that creative power of God. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. So, Jesus was supernaturally conceived and virgin born. Now, many today object to such a doctrine of the church. They consider it unreasonable. It does not make any sense as to how such a thing can occur. What is the answer to that? Do we as Christians simply capitulate before such objection? when many mock the idea of a supernatural conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary. 
Well, unless you claim to be one who can know everything here this morning, and I don't think anybody wants to be so bold. If you do, it's not that you are bold. It's you are foolish. Please don't be offended as I say that. I say that about myself as I say that about you. Anyone who claims to know everything, that you've been everywhere in this universe, and you can know everything there is to know, unless that is so, then you cannot know of a certainty that there is no God. You cannot know of a certainty that there is no power in this universe that is capable of performing what we call miracles, things beyond the natural order of things unless you know everything, unless you have been everywhere to know everything, you cannot rule out the possibility of such miracle here this morning. Whatever else your objection may be to supernatural conception and virgin birth, it is not a reasonable objection. And yet so many make their God reason, do they not? Human reason. But to rule it out, to say it cannot be, is unreasonable for finite, fallible human beings. Supernatural conception, virgin birth, is simply no problem for an all-powerful God. Let me say that again. It's very simple, but it's very important. Supernatural conception, virgin birth, is simply no problem for an all-powerful God. And so this morning, let us be content to believe what the Bible says, to believe it with reverence and sincerity. And let us not reject this revealed truth in unbelieving skepticism. That's what so often rules the hearts of men and women, boys and girls today, isn't it? Unbelieving skepticism. It's not reasonable to me, therefore it cannot be. with Him who made the world out of nothing and into nothing. Supernatural conception and virgin birth is no problem whatsoever. And so, as the church this morning, we may safely rest in the words of the Apostles' Creed. They are not unreasonable. They are not foolish or stupid. They are those words which summarize the teaching of Holy Scripture as they have down through the centuries. I trust if you are a Christian this morning that you confess, He, Jesus Christ, was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin 
Mary. Why is that so important? Why is that revealed so clearly in the Scriptures? Why does the church make such a big deal of this? Well, one theologian puts it like this, because Christ was to come from Adam, He had to have a true human nature. He had to be a true man, but not by Adam. So says Puritan Richard Sipps. He had to come from Adam, but not by Adam. He had to be a man, but not from the line of Adam, else he too would be a sinner. He had to come as a second Adam. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit because He had to be without spot or sin in order that He might offer Himself as a sacrifice for the sin of others. That is why Jesus was supernaturally conceived and born of the Virgin Mary to come from Adam, but not by Adam. And so that brings us in the second place to fulfill prophecy, verses 22 and 23a, fulfill prophecy. Matthew here goes on to tell us that all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. The prophet in question here is the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 7 at verse 14, we read the words cited by Matthew, therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Now, before we come to some details here, we need to note that what this tells us very clearly in Matthew's citing of Isaiah the prophet, that the writings of the Bible are the very words of God. Is that too simple a thing to say this morning? It is not, and I'll say it again. The writings of the Bible are the very words of God. Matthew says all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Yes, those words are given through human instruments, the means of human authors. But those words are no less God's words for that very reason. Again, do you object? Are you skeptical? Again, can you say that you know everything being everywhere to say that the sovereign, almighty God of heaven cannot speak infallibly? inerrantly, through the means of human instruments. It is presumptuous to say such a thing. Matthew tells us here, this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Now, one way in which God shows Himself to be God and in control of the history of the world is by telling us 
what will happen before it occurs. That's what we have here. That's what prophecy is. Again, in the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 44, verse 7, we read this. God speaks through His prophet, Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will come and what will happen. See how God here demonstrates that He and He alone is God by His ability, His sovereign ability to declare what will happen even before it occurs. And as it were, we say this reverently, He throws down the gauntlets to anyone else and says, you want to claim to be God, then do what I can do. Knowing that they cannot do it. Let them declare what is to come and what will come and what will happen. Again, God's sovereign control over all the events of history is, of course, for the great accomplishment of His sovereign plan and purpose. Again, the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 46, reading at verse 8. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. History is not a random sequence of events. It may appear so to us at times. It may be even appearing to be so at this time to us, particularly as we look across the stage of international events, momentous events, but seemingly occurring randomly. Never know what a day may bring forth. That is true. It all seems somewhat increasingly unpredictable and unstable. But from God's sovereign perspective, it is not that. History is the unfolding of a plan determined by the sovereign God even before the foundation of the world. That means history moves towards a goal. It's not just blowing this way and that way. Events don't just happen haphazardly, however so it may appear to us. They come to pass in fulfillment of God's plan. And here Matthew draws our attention to this in the birth of Jesus Christ. And as he draws attention to this, it reminds us to our great comfort this morning, I trust, that God is in control of all of history. He ordered the events, even as we read in Luke's gospel, the events of the administration of a worldwide empire, Rome, so that Joseph, 
and Mary and the Lord Jesus in the womb of the Virgin Mary are in the right place at the right time for His birth. The Lord had said through Micah, Bethlehem is the place, little known place, backwater, not really very important. Nobody kind of speaks much. Even amongst the clans of Judah, it's not very important, but it's going to be there. Joseph and Mary live way to the north in Nazareth of Galilee, but the Lord sovereignly moves the events, even the heart of Caesar Augustus, such that taxation policy will ensure that Joseph and Mary and the Lord Jesus are in Bethlehem at the time for His birth. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it? Amazing thing. Something you and I cannot do. We often look at events, let alone worldwide significant events, the events of our own lives, and it becomes very obvious very quickly that we're not in control even of that scope of life. But here, Matthew draws our attention that God is the sovereign God who ordains all of history to serve His purpose. And so, these things assure us that God is faithful to fulfill what He has promised. All this took place, Matthew tells us, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken. And particularly, He had spoken what? A promise to send a Messiah, a Savior, an anointed one, to save His people from their sins. Well, then that brings us in the third place to two given names, two given names, verse 21 and verse 23b. The angel told Joseph that Mary will have a son, and Joseph is to call his name Jesus, verse 21a. The angel then went on to give explanation for that name. Why was he to be called that? For he will save his people from their sins, verse 21b. Now, the name Jesus, as many of you will know, is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew name Joshua, or sometimes it's pronounced with an E vowel, Yeshua. It simply means in Greek or in Hebrew, the Lord saves. The Lord saves. And so, Jesus will bear that name because He has come to save. He will save His people from their sins. He will save them from the guilt of sin by washing them in His own atoning blood. He will save them from the dominion of sin by putting in their hearts the sanctifying Spirit of God. He will save them from the presence of sin when He at last takes them from this world even to the glories of heaven above. He will save them from all the consequences of sin even when He perfects them in body and soul at that last great day when He returns to take all of His children to be with Himself, glorified body and soul forever and ever. 
Give him the name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Therefore, this name, Jesus, is a name which should be and is a great encouragement to sinners like you and me. It's a name of great significance and encouragement to us. John says in his gospel, John 3 verse 17, God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through Him might be saved. Jesus is a name which is sweet and precious to believers. I trust He is that to you this morning, Christian. Not just because it's a name that identifies like often our names are, and identified or distinguishes from someone else. But it's a name that speaks of who He is and what He came to do. Jesus gives to believers His people what money cannot buy. You may receive all sorts of gifts tomorrow, things that money can buy. And in their appropriate place, there will be nothing wrong with that to receive them in the spirit in which they have been given to you and to enjoy them richly as God has so ordained and purposed. But in the end, they won't last. Nowadays, things perhaps last a little longer than they did in my childhood. Sometimes the toys I got on Christmas morning didn't last even till Christmas evening in the vigor of my playing with them. And that was a bit of disappointment. Um, because we lived in a day and a time and a circumstance of my parents where they could just buy another one the next day as soon as the shops were open. So I learned to be careful with the gifts I was given. But in any event, however careful you are, things wear out, don't they, in the end, no matter how careful you are. But what Jesus gives is what money cannot buy and what will never fade or perish he gives peace, inward peace, a peace that never passes away. He gives that which eases our guilty consciences with the forgiveness of sins. He gives rest to heavy hearts and weary souls. We read in the Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 3, Your name is oil poured out. And that's the picture of the Old Testament of that which relieves, that which brings comfort, the pouring in of oil upon a wound. And the Scripture says the name of the Lord is that to His people. Your name is like oil poured out. But not only is this one to be called Jesus, His name will also be called Emmanuel because He is God with us. Matthew 1 verse 23b. As we noted earlier, 800 years before the birth of Jesus, the prophet Isaiah said these words, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call His name Emmanuel. Isaiah 7 14. Now, the difference here between the angel's instructions to Joseph call Him Jesus, and the prophecy of Isaiah 800 years before 
that his name should be called Emmanuel is not an issue for us here. Many people want to look at such things and you say, well, there you are. You see, now you have an inconsistency in the Bible. Now there's a problem. So, what is he to be called? This isn't an issue like parents who can't agree upon the name of their child. Um, perhaps you've had some experience of that in your family. Well, there's great family debate where it's with parents, extended family, when a newborn is about to be born, perhaps even before they're born. And great debate, well, this or that. Is he going to be called John or is he going to be called Peter or is he going to be called James? That's not the issue here. It's not like the Bible can't make its mind up about what this child is to be called. In the Scriptures, the calling of a name is not simply or even primarily a personal identifier. Um, we get locked into that way of thinking, don't we? Because that's very much how we use names, particularly in Western culture. Um, so I'm called Jeff to distinguish me from anybody else. Now, there's more than one Jeff in the world, but, but generally with each of our names, there's not too many of the same name in the same group too often. And so you distinguish people by their names. Or it's something which we come to have to accept, but as we don't uh, give ourselves names unless we change our name by deep hole or whatever. Um, but it's something by which we agree to be addressed by. So, if you call out my name, then I will turn around and see who's kind of calling for me. And uh, often we use names in dialogue, don't we, in conversation to each other as we address one another. That's how we're used to using names. That's not how the Bible primarily uses names. For the Scripture, it is much more a matter of telling us who that person is. It's a revelation of something about them. That's why Jesus is called both Jesus and Emmanuel. Mary's child here is God Himself who has come to be with us. That's why He's given the name Emmanuel. The very familiar story of Jesus' birth here is as the story of God coming down from heaven. It's not just some sentimental story of a child in the manger. It's the story of God Himself coming down to us. If you like the technical language of theology, which is good to know and to use very properly and precisely, it's God coming down from heaven and assuming our humanity, taking to Himself a true human nature and dwelling among us, being with us so that He will save His people from their sins. That's what the name Emmanuel is all about. That's why it's given to Him. It's a revelation of who He is, God manifest in the flesh. Richard Sibbs puts it like this. He says, quote, A true Savior of the world must be God with man. Whether we consider the good we are to have by a Savior or the evil we are to be freed from by a Savior, both enforce that He must be Emmanuel, God with us. To satisfy the wrath of God, to undergo a punishment due to sin as our surety, to give us title to heaven 
and to bring us there to know our hearts, our wants, our griefs, our infirmities. Who can do these things but God? End quote. And so we see here clearly portrayed as elsewhere in Scripture that in the one person of Jesus Christ, there is the perfect union of two natures, one fully divine and one fully human. That is why, again, the church confesses about our Lord Jesus. He is fully God and fully man. We see that in Scripture, don't we, in the very Gospels. We read that Jesus could be weary and hungry and thirsty. He could weep and groan and feel pain like us. In all these ways, we see the true humanity of the Lord Jesus. He is fully man. We see there the human nature He assumed when He was born of the Virgin Mary. But in those very same Gospels, as elsewhere through the Scriptures, we read of words of the Lord Jesus where He said concerning Himself, before Abraham was, I am. On another occasion, He says, I and my Father are one. He was called by one of His disciples, my God. And Jesus did not rebuke him, did not say, don't do that. You may remember an angel said that to the Apostle John. When John bowed down to him, what did the angel say? Don't do that. It's not right. It's not appropriate because I am creature just like you. But when Thomas said, my Lord and my God, Jesus received, accepted that worship because it was right and appropriate for Him to respond in that way. In all these words, we see the true deity of the Lord Jesus, fully God. He is the eternal God, as Paul calls Him, the one who is overall God-blessed forever. Amen. Romans 9, verse 5. And so we see in these two names who Jesus is, and what He came to do. Fully God, fully man, to save His people from their sins. Now, seeing Christ's deity here provides a strong foundation for faith and hope. That's what it does, a strong foundation for faith and hope. He in whom you are invited to believe this morning, the one in whom you are invited to trust, is none other than God incarnate, the Almighty, eternal God. The one to whom all power in heaven and on earth belongs. The one from whose hand none can pluck His people. If you will trust in Him, if you will turn to Him this morning, then your heart need not be troubled nor afraid. 
He is the Savior who will save His people from their sins. Christ's deity provides the strongest of foundations, the most sufficient of foundations for faith and hope in the one that God has sent to save from sin. But seeing Christ's humanity grants that sweet comfort even to all who do trust in Him as Lord and Savior. He is the man, Jesus Christ, who indeed, as one commentator puts it, quote, who lay on the bosom of the Virgin Mary as a little infant and knows the heart of a man, the one who can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, end quote. In Christ's humanity, we see the one who himself experienced in that human nature the temptations of the evil one, the one who endured hunger in the wilderness, the one who shed tears at the tomb of Lazarus, the one who felt pain unimaginable to most, if not all of us, as He died upon the cross. We must trust Him unreservedly, even with all of our sorrows, even with all of our perplexities, even with all of our doubts and fears. He will not disappoint us. He does not despise our weaknesses. We may pour our hearts out this morning and rest in one who sympathizes with us in all of our weaknesses. Have you felt the need for that this past week? Do you know others who've passed through such circumstance where they felt such needs? Here is one God given for such, for you and for all others who will trust in Him. He sympathizes with us, for He bears our human nature. He has assumed that nature to Himself. And so, this Christmas time, this Advent season, let these truths sink deeply down into your heart and mind. These truths tell us of one who has been sent to save sinners, sinners like you and me. Would you not receive such salvation this morning? It tells us that this Savior is Emmanuel, God Himself, God with us, God manifest in human flesh like our own, one who came to do that what we could not do for ourselves, but one who would save to the uttermost all those who come to God by Him. This is glad tidings, isn't it? 
glad tidings of great joy. This is good news. Receive it this morning, even to the everlasting blessing of your souls. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank You for Your Word, even for very familiar passages. We pray again that You would thrill our hearts with the truth that Your Son, our Savior, came into this world, supernaturally conceived by the Spirit of God, virgin-born, even as second Adam even so that He might offer Himself spotless as that full and final sacrifice for sin. Grant, O Lord, that we see that You are the faithful God of Your promise, even as You promised from the very beginning at the fall of man in the garden to send the seed of the woman. And grant, O Lord, as You have revealed in the full light of the New Testament Scriptures, the identity and the purpose and function and the work of Your Son, Messiah, grant us to turn to Him today, to turn to Jesus, the One who was so named because He saves His people from their sins, that we turn to that One who is named Emmanuel, God with us, a mighty Savior, one who is able to do all that He purposes, even in the salvation of sinners. Help us, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen.